What is happening, team? Welcome to another episode of Anabolic Radio. I'm your host, Coach Ishak, with HawkFit Coaching and Legion Athletics. And I'm joined today by Kasim Hansen from N1 Education. How are you doing today, Coach Kasim? What's up? Hey, everybody. I am well. Nice. Been seeing you having some practicals uh, here recently. Uh, this is, if you're listening to this, this is November, uh, November timeframe. But you've had some practicals these past couple of weeks. How have that? How's that gone? It's it's great to finally be you know doing this stuff on the home court, right? Having not just our own space, but also you know a lot of the innovations that we've been working on in terms of equipment and stuff. Being able to have those toys for our students and being able to completely control that environment. So. Uh, it's been good and I'm really looking forward to this like you know the whole next year of just like putting on a ton of events absolutely absolutely you have any uh, events coming up in the near future yeah so I mean essentially our goal is to just have continuous events you'll probably have our biomechanics course about uh, every month if you know we, we keep filling filling those up um, so our next one that has opening is in the middle of December and then the one at the one after that is in February but in 2022 we're going to try and expand we're going to try and add some you know some hands-on stuff for program design we're going to try and have a hypertrophy workshop a contest prep workshop maybe a you know strength and power workshop you know some some more specialty or, or niche events as well with some guest speakers so, trying to get a lot of people that uh, probably you know the the people on the social media verse think that uh uh we have you know diverse opinions or disagree with so that we can kind of break that echo chamber a little bit um so i'm i'm looking forward to those conversations and those events where we basically get to have like a a live round table with uh with actual students and whatnot you know and who knows maybe we'll see uh maybe we'll see some battles in the gym and uh and on the stage as well we'll see Nice. That sounds like a ton of fun. And I uh, recently had the opportunity, if you guys are following social and you've seen N1 social, I recently had the opportunity to go out and visit uh, Coach Kasim. And it was an absolute blast just being able to be in an environment where, you know, others are pushing you because oftentimes for myself, you know, I'm the one that's doing a majority of the pushing for myself and my athletes and my team. So it just felt good to get to a space where, you know, I'm able to be pushed by others by me and I'm not the one doing it myself. But for the basis of this episode, we're going to be talking about, you know, a few things related to lower body. So a couple is glutes. We're going to be talking about arcs of motion for quads, arcs of motion for glutes, and why differentiating, you know, uh, I'm doing a glute arc or I'm doing a quad arc, why that's important. And in, uh, in order to understand these spe specificities of training, right, because we're being more specific with what we're doing, um, we have to take more of a larger view approach, okay? And uh, Coach Kasim, why don't you go ahead and give the audience uh, uh, an understanding as to why being efficient in the gym is a sought after goal. Why should we care about doing that? Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot of different reasons and they will kind of vary depending on where you at, where you're at in your training journey. So if you're a beginner being efficient might be one thing. And if you're advanced, efficient might be another thing. So when it comes to the human body, we can all, we can only, you know, 
we can only absorb so much stress. And our goal is to make as much of that stress a positive stress as possible. And that's what we're trying to do in training is we're trying to invoke a positive stress that is going to then get us positive adaptations. And if we waste that stress on things that aren't productive, then that means that there's less that we can push towards at adapting and becoming better. So efficiency in terms of, you know, the gym can be looked at as not just like time efficiency, uh, but more so as is like, hey, how do I use the stress that I'm going to pose my body in the most beneficial way so that I get the most bang for my buck in terms of a results perspective? Absolutely, absolutely. And this goes even further into uh, guidelines that is provided by the literature. So for example, volume requirements. So there's there's a big difference in doing 10 sets for a given muscle group and you're just blindly doing 10 sets versus doing 10 sets and making sure that every single rep within every single set is pretty much damn near perfect. So why should we get to a point with our execution to where it's standardized from rep to rep to set to set? Why is being effective with what we do in the gym important? So when we look at how an exercise affects our body, right? So we we need to be able to input a stimulus and that means that we need to make sure whatever exercise we're doing makes the target tissue the limiter right that means it's it's biased enough in a technique that that tissue is the thing that is going to be the most strained and that tissue is going to be what's fatigued that's what's going to accumulate the effective reps right if we start wandering around in technique what starts to happen is, is we create the opportunity for other things to get stressed but also for something to potentially become the limiter which would actually prevent us from getting effective reps in the tissue that we want, or at least getting as many of them. So how much this matters depends on how far along you are in your training career. I mean, if you're a beginner, like being in the ballpark might be good enough, but the more advanced you become, the greater the threshold is for you to hit that stimulus. So you need to like, you need to be doing it with like kind of a more like laser, like a finer scope approach in terms of your technique. The other and just practical aspect of it too, is from a progressive overload standpoint right is if you're if the things that you're doing are inconsistent it's really hard to progress from an inconsistent place right so it's be like okay you know if your goal was to run a little bit further every day that becomes very hard if you're not sure how much how far you ran yesterday right so if you ran a different route every day unless you had like a device that like really accurately tracked that it'd be very hard for you to determine like well were these blocks the same length as the blocks that i ran in the other direction or whatever and that's essentially what we're trying to do with exercise it's like okay if the technique is the same you know our tempo is the same you know and we're managing the loading and all that stuff then it's very easy to know when the decision is to go up five pounds or to add reps or whatever and know that that's actually a progression and it wasn't just like well okay i went up in weight but i swung a little bit more so maybe i actually did a little bit less than last week you know that's that's the potential that we can get if we're not consistent with our with our technique this is where quality of training comes into play because there's there's more more oftentimes people get uh stuck in the trap of thinking that more is better, but more is better to a given point until it's to the point to where we can't recover from or to where we're doing more than we can recover from. So with regards to lower body, when it comes to being specific with whether we're doing an exercise for quads or whether we're doing an exercise for glutes, why is it important to differentiate between the arcs of motion? So 
it goes back to trying to decide or, or trying to make the target tissue the limiter, right? So let's look at a leg press, for example, because that's where a lot of people will differentiate these two things, right? So the lower you move your feet, right, the more mechanical work is required by the quads to do that exercise, right? So if your feet are low enough, you will stop being able to move that load when the quads fail. But if you start to move your feet up, the quads gain leverage, which means they could keep going. And so the goal is when you're switching between these things would be to move the feet up enough so that the quads would not be the thing that failed, that it would actually be your hip extension that was the thing that failed and then would cause you to end the set. So when we're looking at like choosing the, you know, a position or an arc, that's really what we're doing is we're trying to make sure that we bias the stimulus towards that tissue. And if we don't do it well enough, then we can compensate with things that are, we'll say, synergistic, right? Or that have a complementary effect in that motion. So say you just throw your feet in the middle and you just decide to go for it, you know, on the leg press. You won't know until the end of your set, like, what what caused failure and who knows depending on your ability to perceive that failure you won't know for sure maybe both things came really close or whatnot and that may or may not suit the goal like there may be times when we, you want both things to be working simultaneously that is that is a reasonable goal to have so you can do quads and glutes at the same time for a particular goal or if you're going to be training like hip extension or glutes in a couple days, you might want to actually choose a setup that is very, very quad biased so that you're limiting how much fatigue that you create in the glutes even more than needed. But that way they're going to be fresher in a day or two when you're going to train that portion or you're going to do those movements where then you want the bias to be flipped. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Great point. So outside of the context of a leg, uh, outside of a leg press, for example, how can we modify certain exercises to then suit someone's biomechanics? For, for most people, sometimes it's going to be in the form of uh, heel elevation in order to make it more quad bias so they could achieve sufficient range of motion or sufficient knee flexion in order to challenge the quads. Whereas if we're trying to challenge more glutes, you really just have to be aware of the active range of motion that you're working through for that target muscle. So really differentiating between the types of muscles you're working is really important. You could simply do this by just thinking about your goal going into a given exercise. Now this is outside of, okay, if you're not following a training program, we're talking about these, we're talking to the people who are trying to maximize their muscle gains. We're talking to the anabolic listeners. So for those of you who are trying to maximize hypertrophy, differentiating these fine details within your training is important because it goes back to quality versus quantity. How much can you do for it to be, uh, or how much can we do to get the most out of least? So with regard, or the most out of less. So with regards to lower body training, we see a lot of things on social media that are endorsed by certain people, certain gurus, certain exercises, and for the audience listening and for some people who are not aware, can you go ahead and provide them with a mechanical understanding as to why things like bands or certain exercises like sumo squats or frog pumps are not the most efficient choices of exercise selection for training that tissue? Yeah, well, I'm assuming that we're talking about glute max here with, with those exercises, right? Uh, 
So when we look at the glute max, uh, its predominant function is hip extension. There's actually three portions of the glute max. So if you think of it, it's, just like the, it's kind of like a big deltoid on the back of your pelvis, you know, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and so there's, there's, there's some issues with the research. There's some issues with the exercises out there, you know, and a lot of, a lot of, you know, what happens in our industry is somebody says something and then it just gets repeated, repeated, repeated indefinitely. Right. So when we look at something like bands around the knee and we look at the over-focus on the abduction component and we're like, well, what, why is that wrong? Where did it come from? So on the more outer side of your, of your glutes, right? So you have a division that's called the iliac glute max, right? So that's the portion of the glute max fibers that go up and attach to the iliac, but they actually wrap around the side of the femur. Like they go over the side of it, um, not just behind it. So that means that there is an abduction quality to those specific fibers. And then some of the glute mean actually runs right underneath there. So basically your two kind of things that would be abductors kind of overlap right there. And that happens to be where they put this, like if they're putting an EMG sensor, for example, that they will place that and they will just call that glute max in a lot of research. When in reality, it's like the other two divisions of the glute max, which are, which are lower, like the ones that attach to the sacrum, which basically makes up the whole middle of the glute max and the coccygeal ones, they don't have that abduction quality. Actually, if you were to look at it, they would actually like they adduct the, like the leg, they pull it in. Right. They don't they don't they don't push it out. They pull it in. Um, and so in terms of the research, basically, most of what we have just completely leaves those two glutes. So they're just, they're just they're just not even looked at, not even. So when they're looking at glute max, there's a bias in the research in terms of like what it says and what the exercise selection is, partly because, well, we're just not actually measuring all of the glutes. Okay. And then there's also some issues with study design and things like that, where we look at and we say like, well, okay, um, if somebody, if we're, if we're just measuring it, like whether a contraction goes up or down in terms of, you know, how much reading we get, anything that we create, that's going to make that more difficult might make an exercise, exercise seem artificially better. And that will happen in positions where say, say if you stick the leg out too far and then you can no longer extend it, what you end up doing is you end up kind of contracting your hip extensors against your abductors and they're trying to fight for how to position that hip. But you're essentially creating your own internal resistance. It's no longer a benefit of the exercise. It's literally you just fighting yourself in like an isometric fashion. So in a lot of these things where they're using either very small range of motion or they're using isometrics to try and determine the quality of these exercises or whether or not we should do exercises similar to those positions, um, that data can't necessarily be extrapolated to what we would do in the terms of like full range movements in the gym. And so the consequence of that is, is we get an overemphasis on things like wearing the booty bands around the knees, where what you get is you get that co-contraction of the leg is trying to fight you wanting to push it out and you wanting to do a hip extension per se, say if you're doing it in a hip thrust or a squat or whatnot. So it's like you're trying to do two opposing activities because full hips, hip extension actually starts coming back towards midline behind the body. Like your leg arcs around behind you and comes in, right? If you just watch any sprinter, that's how it is. Like when people are sprinting, their legs aren't flopping out to the side, all bow-legged and stuff, right? Like our, everything kind of tracks back in. Um, and so you're, you're essentially fighting yourself there, but that, that tug of war between your own tissue, what we call a co-contraction gives you a heightened sensation. So it gives you a, Ooh, I feel it. 
right? And that's because there's a high degree of coordination between that tug of war that's required, right? So from a neurological standpoint, you're you're presenting it with a really complicated problem to solve, and therefore the sensation is very high. But that sensation should not be confused for this is a good exercise or this is high mechanical tension, uh, per se, right? That doesn't always that doesn't always you know come into play, um, and we can't look at you know we use EMG in our lab, you know, but I would argue that there's good and bad ways to use it. It all comes down to the study design and how you interpret it and whatnot. Um, but you definitely shouldn't look at that as like the sole thing that you use to determine whether or not, you know, this is a valid exercise or not. You need to have like stacks of evidence that, that are either biomechanical, metabolic or oxygen sensors, you know, EMG, like in all of those things saying the same thing. If they're conflicting, then you know something's going on, right? Like why, you know, why does this not make biomechanical sense, but it does this on the EMG? What, why, why is there a conflict there? And usually it happens to do with either the study design, you know, or we're just interpreting things uh, inappropriately on one side or the other. Um, <clears throat> so without getting too much into the weeds, so things like bands are requiring you to push in a direction and activate muscles that actually limit the range of motion of the other muscles. So you're better off either doing hip extension or abduction, not trying to do hip extension, abduction at the same time. And now if you wanted to train the iliac glute or say the glute med, where their motion is a hybrid of those, you wouldn't you wouldn't use the band, you would just train a motion that directly moved in line with that muscle, right? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> so you could do a kickback or a press back that had moved in a slight abduction angle, but it would be a gradual abduction angle and the force would be in that angle, right? So like the cable, you would be kicking back at a cable that was just at a slightly outward angle. You wouldn't be kicking back straight and then also pushing out in a band, right? That's, you know, in, in physics terms, that's like you're using a resultant to try and, you know, or you're using another force to try and get a resultant out of that. And so it's like, rather than using two things to do that, you'll find it much better if you're like, hey, this is the direction that the muscle pulls. Let's just find a resistance there moving that arc much more efficient right because if we try and complicate it with two movements that's really hard to maintain a, a good resultant of resistance throughout a large range of motion really usually it's like okay it might be good in one little spot and then the other like 90 percent of the range of motion it's absolute garbage right and it can also limit just limit your ability to get output because it's very complicated to push against two different directions rather than having one direction of resistance to overcome Right, 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 so, right. So and then for, when we look at something, okay. Oh, you want to talk about you, the frog pump too? Yeah, just just uh, for those of you who didn't get the nerdy stuff of what we're talking about, basically what we're saying is abducting. So the band is forcing us to abduct, abduct our our knees out. And in some exercises where we're trying to train hip extension, for example, flex glutes, right? That's going to be something that limits force production. So our ability to produce force with the target muscle. And it's also potentially going to be something that limits the range of motion we're able to work through. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, a great example of that is if you just watch even the people that push the bands and, you know, that, you know, they're trying to sell them or whatever. Like if you just watch, you know, they'll, they'll literally post content that kind of debunks the theory in itself where they will post a you know, they'll do a hip thrust with a whole bunch of weight on it. And then they'll throw like a tiny little TheraBand on there. And all of a sudden they're doing like 50, 60% of the weight, right? So it's like, wait, so you put this little TheraBand on there and that's the equivalent of taking four plates off the bar, right? You know, a, a 15 pound TheraBand equals, equals four, four plates. Um, so that right there should be a clue 
that it's like, okay, this obviously is doing something that's more disruptive than productive if it's decreasing your force production that much. Um, so the next thing to look at is just in the just like the path of motion, right? So um, when we look at something like a frog pump, so the logic there is just like, well, okay, the glutes do shorten in a degree of external rotation. So then the frog pump basically pushes you into extreme external rotation. But what we'd really want is we want the hips to be able to like naturally externally rotate through the, the motion, right? So because they're they're not externally rotated the whole time. They just like as they get to their end position, they're close to external rotation, um, but they're not strong external rotators. Most of that external rotation that happens um, happens because of the neck of the femur. So like your shoulder is just a ball in the socket. So it just moves around, whatever, but your femur has like this little neck. So the ball is like, you know, sticking out in one direction. So that means like, as you move back the leg back and forth, it kind of swings around a little bit, which is great because that allows us to run without tripping over our own feet, right? Like our, our leg path, our gait motion has a sweep to it. Um, and so the, that's the same thing for our hip extension pattern is it has a bit of a sweep to it where we technically are, you know, our, if I was doing a glute stretch, I would bring my knee across the front of my body, like it would adduct, it would come in like towards my belly button. And then if I was doing a, an extension, it would go out a little bit and then it would come back in a little bit behind me, right? So essentially like a crescent shape. Now, the thing with the frog pump is not only does it force you into more external rotation than the glute actually does, but the load now is going through the outside of your foot, which is actually making you push towards internal rotation, right? So if you think about that, you know, if you pull your heel towards your crotch, you're externally rotating your leg, right? But to do the frog pump, you have to push your foot the opposite direction into the right. ground. So even though you're going into an external rotation position, right, you're, you're putting an opposite rotational load on the hips, right? So it's too abducted, it's too externally rotated, and it's not even the right direction of force if we wanted to load the external rotation component of the exercise. So, I mean, that's again, when we create these exercises where they create a lot of instability, we get more co-contraction and we get a lot of feeling. And so when you look at something like a frog pump, that's one of those exercises where the sensation is literally your body telling you this is a terrible, weak place to be, right? So what um, because, would you say for people who mistake those sensations for a positive, uh, a positive stimulus for that tissue? Yeah, and that's one of the most difficult things, right? Because people want to like, we want to associate feeling with that with that good outcome, right? Um, but you know, what I tell them is, it's like, okay, hey, you know, if you wake up in the morning, you don't feel the temperature of the room because the room is great, right? It's fine, but if you accidentally put your hand on the on a hot stove, you get an instant reflex, right? Like your brain tells you super hot, like pull your hand away. Most of our feedback is what the hand on the stove is, right? It's not telling us like our brain isn't going to constantly annoy us with everything is going good, right? It's only going to tell us when something needs to change. Be like, hey, dummy, stop doing that, right? Um, so what I would tell people is if you can try and focus on motions that like as you go to fatigue maybe you get a small sensation to them if you wanted to use sensation of guide like tension is a very subtle sensation and the drill i you know like to use for people is just tell them like hey you know just put one arm over your uh, opposite wrist and flex your bicep 
right? And you know like you're flexing your bicep hard, but it, it's not an overwhelming sensation. So if you're getting something and it feels super crampy or way more than that, odds are that is a negative feedback sensation. What you want is just like a the subtle feeling of tension and then maybe you can tell that something starts to fatigue, right? You feel the pump, you feel the burn, like those are all fine things. I wouldn't use them as my only guide, but it's like, okay, the, those things, those, if I'm feeling those things, that's not a sign that it's a bad exercise. That's a sign that it's maybe potentially good, right? But if I'm feeling super crampiness, right? Especially like at the beginning of the set, right? Like you're doing a lightweight and you just get into that position and it gives you a really high sensation. You're not even close to fatigue yet. It's not a super heavy load or whatever. That's probably a sign that you're just doing a garbage exercise and your body's like, hey, why are you doing this to my joints? What did I ever do to you? I've been helping you get around your whole life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what would you have to say for the audience with regards to a practical application for when they see certain things on social media, how they could question it and how they could kind of assess whether that would be appropriate or inappropriate, like something like a glute scooping technique where you're in the bottom position of a, of a hip thrust or, you know, a glute drive machine and you're in an excessively, uh, your spine is in excessively extended position, right? We know that, you know, that's going to increase risk of injury. Well, unfortunately, the only protection against bullshit is education. It's really, it's really kind of the way it is. So you have to become more informed if you want to avoid being misinformed. Um, and, you know, so social media is great and it allows us to reach so many people, um, you know, but there's no regulatory body. There's no standard. There's no anything like that. So first thing I would say is just like, look, if you are choosing to get your education from social media, then you just have to accept that a lot of that probably isn't going to be very high quality information. Right. And, you know, if you're fine with that, then by all means, like, you know, your expectations just to need to match reality. Right. If you're expecting to go on Instagram and get the best advice from everybody out there that's posting <laughs> naked pictures for free. Uh, yeah, that's that's just an unrealistic expectation. Right. Um, so what I would say is, is like if you, if you really want to focus on exercising better, you know, then you should actually look for reputable sources that do this for a living and get educated um, from those. Right. And what that will do is it will not only not only will you get a good solid base of information, but it will help you kind of have, you know, a bit of a bullshit meter to know like, OK, this 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 guy here, I don't think he quite, you know, knows what he's talking about this exercise here. I can see why that does or doesn't make sense. Uh, et cetera, so that you can still get ideas and inspiration from people out there, but you can kind of filter out the good from the bad out. But until you get get yourself a good base level of education, you know, then you're it's going to be hard because there's some people that post things that are great one day and terrible the next. It's not like that the bad people just always post bad content and the good people always post good content because, well, a, well, a lot of people might be financially motivated. There's really, there's in a lot of people out there that are like, Hey, I'm going to put out this exercise cause everybody's going to do it. And I'm going to be like, ha you guys are all doing stupid shit that I made up. Um, I don't think there's a lot of people like that. There's just people that don't know any better that are just, they're just playing the game of the algorithm. Right. And, um, you know, novelty and things that are really different and weird. They, they do better on social media. Like, to be honest, like, you know, posting an exercise of a basic exercise with really good form is not a good way to get a lot of likes and clicks. 
Um, you know, so that that's but just new, something that you sometimes in a lot of these new exercises, it's neglecting basic biomechanics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, or it's just, it's just, a, it's just an overcomplication of like, look, you could, you could get something that was just as good or better, like so much simpler. Right. Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. So in summary, don't get stuck in your feelings, guys. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist. You know, simply pull up your phone. Look up the anatomy of that muscle group. Try to find a more appropriate path of motion for training that muscle rather than trying to throw a dart on a dartboard with your eyes closed. Now, when it comes to efficiency and effectiveness of training and trying to make each rep of every set more or less identical, um, we know that's important with regards to maximizing tension, but maximizing tension or time under tension doesn't really tell us much. So something that you've termed over at N1 is the term time under significant tension. So could you go ahead and give some, uh, give the audience some insight as to that term and why it's important? Yeah. So the purpose of the TUST or time under significant tension is to make people pay attention to not just the motion, but also the resistance and the tempo, right? So there will be a portion of an exercise that may be challenging and there may be a portion of an exercise that is not so challenging. And the temptation is to stop and rest at the not challenging part you know, and try and bounce through or blow through the challenging part. And so if you spend the same number of seconds in an exercise, uh, you know, say you got two people, they both use a, a tempo, you know, that takes four seconds per rep, but one person is spending an extra second of that in the hard part and the other person spending an extra second in the easy part, they're doing a significantly different amount of work, even though they're working with the same load over the same amount of time. Right. Mm. So this is so basically TUST means accounting for tempo in that as well. Right. So, for instance, if you do a pause squat, right, where you go down to the bottom, you stop there for a second or two and then come back up versus you did the same amount of, you know, total time under tension of just squats going up and down because the pause squats, you spend a greater amount of time in the hardest portion, I would say, well, we got more tension there there and i would count that set as more volume per se if that made sense like if we just if we just weight equated that or whatever i'd be like yeah clearly spending more time in the hardest part is more volume right now you can make the you can make the case that as long as we're taking sets to failure that some of these things become i don't want to say not important but a little bit less important meaning that like you're still kind of getting to that point of mechanical tension if you're going close to fatigue, right? But getting back to keeping the reps the same or whatever, we'd like to be able to get to that condition of fatigue the same over the cross of sets and the same over the cross of workouts so that we know how to properly progress that tension, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. mm. Great points, great points. <clears throat> in summary, and for those of you who didn't catch what he said, every, every exercise we do, there's going to be points in the range of motion where we're strongest. There's going to be points in the range of motion where we're weakest. Okay. This is referred to as mechanical advantage. So there's going to be points where we have the most mechanical advantage. There's going to be points where we have the least mechanical advantage. Why is this important? Well, it goes back to how we opened up this conversation, being more efficient and effective with what we're doing in the gym. So for example, if we programmed exercises that load the same portion of the range of motion, like a barbell back squat and a rear foot elevated split squat, 
Sure, there's purpose in each exercise, but overall, that would be redundant. That would be a redundant exercise sequence because you're loading the same portion of the range of motion if you're doing both of those exercises for glutes, for example. So you may find more value out of another exercise that would load the short position, for example, like a hip extension, like a 45 degree back extension or a, a glute drive. So these are some things you guys need to take into account when it comes to uh, when it comes to exercise selection. It's not only exercise selection, but it's all also exercise sequence because that matters as well to a certain point it depends on your training level of advancement if you're you're more beginner or you're more advanced but these fine details in our training do matter and we also get people who will say that oh tempo doesn't matter just control the eccentric just explode out of the concentric but we know that certain exercises could either emphasize loading the lengthened position or um you know, emphasize loading the short position. So depending on our goal, we could either create more muscle damage or more metabolic stress and, and or more metabolic stress. And this has further nuances for like a, a physique athlete who is in the final stages of contest prep. And we want to uh, maximize, uh, we want to maximize glycogen storage. We would likely um, bias not loading the lengthened position and bias more movements to loading the short position. So these are also just, you know, different variables to take into account when it comes to program design. And um, with regards to tempo, we don't have any, uh, we don't have any literature to support, you know, um, greater hypertrophy when controlling uh, tempo. But from a practical application standpoint and a teaching standpoint, could you give the audience some insight as to why that would be important? Yeah, well, first I would say that we don't have much research on tempo and most of that research is just comparing slow versus fast. It's not actually ever taking into account uh, accentuating the exercise versus the opposite, right? So. Like so, so we don't have any research that says, well, hey, if you choose a good tempo for an exercise versus a bad tempo for exercise, does it make a difference? We just have exercises where basically they don't use the pauses; they just do either slower or faster eccentrics, concentrics, or or both. So, just I would say, from what we can say from the research component on tempo is very, very little. Right now, in terms of a practical standpoint, I mean, it just comes down to something that's very simple. It's like, well, we know that if we if we pause where there's higher mechanical tension then that, you know, it definitely can't hurt. And if anything, it's in our favor. The other thing is, is that it just, it just goes to help standardizing the rep, but it also makes sure that with the exercises that you choose is that you're getting the benefit out of them. So let's take, for example, a leg extension that you would do for the short position of the quads, right? You would be doing that for the top, but if, you fling the weight up from the bottom. So you do all of your tension in the work and then the momentum carries you up to the top. So you're basically doing almost no muscular work in the very position that you chose that exercise for. You're kind of wasting the whole, you know, point of doing that exercise, right? Cause you're it's like, well, I did this exercise to load this position because my squat or my hack squat or whatever loads the length and position. Well, what, what good does it do to do an exercise that takes you to a position, but does, you're not actually doing any muscular work in that position. Right. So the same thing could be said. So like, say you do a, say you decide to do, you know, 
two different lateral raises, like just to give people another example. So say you want to do a dumbbell lateral raise to make it hard at the top and a cable lateral raise to do it harder at the bottom where, you know, the cables are more horizontal. Well, if you fling the dumbbells up, you're actually just doing the same exercise twice. You're making, mm. you're using, you know, you're creating momentum, you're investing all the energy in the bottom of the lift, and then you're using the momentum to make the top of the lift easier. So you're, you might be doing exercises with two different names you might be doing them in two different spots in the gym but effectively you're just doing the same the same thing in two different locations for sure absolutely absolutely great points and um partially the reason why you know we want to control the eccentric and explode out of the concentric part of the reason why that guideline is i don't want to say parroted because it's a good guideline there's a lot of nuances for tempo but the reason why it's regurgitated so much is because it's ex easily explained by our understanding of the force velocity relationship. You know, uh, generally the the closer we draw to failure, the more motor units we're recruiting, the more muscle fiber will be active from from a contractile perspective. And um, we know that from literature, one of the most important variables. Uh, when it comes to maximizing hypertrophy is getting within close proximity to failure. And that's partially behind the effective reps theory is because the closer we draw to failure, the more of those reps are going to be effective for stimulating muscle growth. Um, you have anything to add on there? No, I mean, I think you summed that up pretty good. I mean, so, I mean, the thing with tempo, like, and this is, I, I think velocity based training is, you know, is in some circles is becoming popular or whatnot, right? So if you are going to use velocity-based training, there is you have to follow a specific tempo if you're going to use those things, and it will vary between exercises, meaning that like in order to judge how much slower your reps get, your concentrics have to be like really hard from the beginning, right? But if your concentrics are more controlled, there will be less of a difference between your first rep and your last rep, right? So as long as you know that going in and you just basically know like what failure is going to look for you, it doesn't necessarily matter if you, if you, if you see the rep speed change a lot, as long as you get to that point of involuntary slowing. Right. Mm -hmm. So you, you could potentially like start your set and it's like, all right, I'm not going to fling these weights because I don't want to, I don't want to use momentum to do the lift. Right. Which means my, my concentric tempo will be a little bit slower. But as you get to fatigue, it will slow even more or that slower tempo will no longer be a choice, right? It's like, <laughs> this is just as fast as it goes. Now, right? there, so are there some situations where we could use momentum to our advantage? Absolutely. And I would say this is more like, you know, for advanced people who are not like swinging their shit like jackasses, basically. Yeah. I mean, basically what you have to look at is, is which part of the rep are you trying to make hard or easy? And will momentum make that better or worse, right? So, because, I mean, take the dumbbell example that we did, the dumbbell lateral. What if you don't have cables? Well, then actually that might be the way that you vary the exercise, right? It's just like, all right, my my lateral raise for the length and focus, I'm actually going to focus on, you know, initiating that contraction a little bit harder and generating that momentum, right? Versus if I wanted to do the top range, then I would use a little bit slower controlled tempo and a lighter weight. Right. And that would allow me to challenge the short position more because I wouldn't be getting there with momentum. So we can use we can basically use that just the way the same way that we would use a band or a cam or whatnot. It's just a way of altering the resistance 
right? If we're if we're generating momentum, that means we're we're investing more muscular energy and more muscular tension in the initiation of the rep, right? If we're not, then we're not creating momentum, and so we're getting a little bit more out of the other end of the rep. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely, very important, very important to understand. And um, this, uh, this, I mean, like we could go on about tempo. I mean, even, even. So let's just break it down, okay? Just real quickly, real practical application. So, for example, let's say I'm, let's say I'm doing a standing bicep curl, okay? Uh, when, when I'm coming on the way up, that would be concentric, okay? And when my forearm is parallel to the floor, that would be isometric in the short position. On the way down, that would be eccentric. And then when my arm dumbbell, when my arm is stacked parallel, uh, perpendicular to the floor, that would be isometric in the lengthened position. So, for example, uh, if I were to program an isometric in the short position, I could potentially be doing that for the purpose of getting that individual to understand what what I want them to be looking for when they do an exercise with regards to the contraction, right? So I, I could do that to get them to understand what I want them to understand a contraction feels like. Whereas in the in the lengthened position at the bottom, I could be programming a, a pause there to get them to understand how to not initiate the movement with uh, with excessive momentum or how to not get that load or weight translated towards a lot of like passive uh, passive tissues like tendon, ligaments, so on and so forth. Anything to add on there? I would say, you know, when, we're, when you're looking at using those two positions, um, they also can be just very good for educating the movement. So um, because basically when we look at setup for an exercise, you know, like, so whatever the exercise is, we set up in one position, right? So, you know, the press, it's the, you know, how you laying on the bench and how you set up, how the pull down is what your torso angle is, where the cable is, et cetera. But basically whatever, whatever, however you go about moving that load from the very beginning impacts where you're going to take that load, right? And then the pause in the short position is helping you understand what that destination is. So pausing in those two points can improve somebody's execution massively because it's like, all right, I know what the stretch position is, what it's supposed to feel like, and I know how to start this movement with the target muscle, and I know the destination that I'm going to. So if it's like, all right, if I start off better and I know where that destination is better, mm. from an execution standpoint, pauses in those two end ranges can be really good at improving somebody's competency in that motion. Because otherwise, like when somebody starts a new movement, right, and they're supposed to be going from point A to point B, and it's an upper body movement like a dumbbell or a cable where they have a ton of motion, like they could go in any sorts of direction. You know, sometimes they look a little bit like a newborn gazelle when they're going through that motion. And the best way to do that uh, or to improve that is to actually accentuate what the starting and ending point of that exercise is. Right. Mm -hmm. One, it will reduce the amount of load that they need, but two, it will help kind of educate those positions so that they can navigate between them better. Mm -hmm. So it's not only about moving the weight from point A to point B team, but it's a matter of owning the weight from point A to point B and being proficient with each portion of the range of motion because anybody could do a thousand reps of you know, a uh, uh, light load, uh, but it, there's a difference between having intent in every single rep and doing your best to just make each rep count. Um, so that was a great summary, Coach Kasim. And um, with regards to uh, with regards to putting a practical application sense on tempo, 
are there any notes you'd like to leave with the audience? Um, I think the simplest thing you can do is spend time where it's hard, right? I mean, or or accentuate, spend more time in the position that is closest to why you chose that exercise, right? So those, 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 those would be the two things that I would say, right? It's like if you chose an exercise to work a specific position, then if you're going to do a pause anywhere, it should be in that position. Um, you know, if there was no, if you just, if you, if it's an exercise, that's just full range of motion or whatever, um, don't, don't spend time where there's no tension, spend time where there's the, the most tension, spend time where, where it's difficult. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of benefits to that, uh, in terms of not just stimulus, but load management too, right? Like if you can get the same stimulus in your quads without having to put as much weight on your back, that might be a win for your fatigue and stress, right? That's, that's where that's where we're getting back to the efficiency standpoint, right? So if I can load my muscles with leverage and not just sheer mass, uh, that's a way of be, being able to be more precise with my loading, right? Challenging the quads more by spending more time where they're working more, but not just like going arbitrarily and having to put lo- more load on your spine, right? Stuff like mm-hmm. that. So there's a lot, I mean, basically, whatever problems you have in the gym, you have so many options, and I think tempo is just one of those things that's, that's overlooked, right? It can be a way of changing a resistance profile. It can be a way of decreasing load when somebody needs to. It can be a way, you know, of making, you know, a smaller progression when you can't quite go up and wait yet or whatever it may be. Like, instead, you, like, you just control the tempo. And it can be a way of making sure that your progressions are more accurate and predictable because your reps are just more consistent. Mm. Mm. Great points, great points. So I think by this point... We filtered out a lot of the Gen Pop listeners, <laughs> um, but if you're still listening, keep listening. Um, Nobody for... likes tempo, dude. They hate it. Yeah, 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 yeah. They yeah, don't even so... like doing it in the gym, let alone listening to it. <laughs> for uh, more of our advanced people, more of our coaches, there were uh, and some Gen Pop people. If you're still listening, there were some notes, subtle, subtle crumbs uh, that we spoke about in in the episode about you know uh interpreting certain literature and emg placement and there there there's a there's a lot of literature that comes out okay every single year science is always evolving and what we have to understand is that there's there's a big difference between reading a study and taking the abstract at face value versus actually sitting down to properly interpret that study and look at the design, look at the limitations, and understand the nuances of it. And in sometimes some of these studies, EMG placement, there are issues with EMG placement. There are issues with study design. So co- this this is one of the this is one of the topics that me and Coach Kasim spoke about when I went to go see him uh, recently. And um, I'm bringing this up mainly because I wanted to ask you: Are there any points you wanted to provide the audience for how they could better interpret literature or how they could sort of find these? Um, issues with study design or EMG placement? I mean, you're really kind of setting the bar high because, you know, we'll put it this way. You have to know more than what the people doing the research know some of the times. That's which I should say that's not very high in terms of a mechanics perspective and stuff like that. I mean, because sometimes it's pretty low. Like a very, very simple thing um, is is that, you know, the EMGs are supposed to be parallel to the fiber direction of the muscles, right? And, um, you know, we've seen studies where they're they're literally, you know, 90 degrees off. Like it's like you couldn't, you couldn't have placed them on the muscle any worse. 
than than what you did. Um, but you're not actually going to see that. Like very very rarely do you actually get like visuals of how a study was run or video, right? Um, and that's kind of one of the unique things that you know the the reason we got our lab set up is basically every every protocol we done there's video evidence of how it was performed. Right. So basically every every rep that we have data on, there's corresponding video of those of those reps, because that's usually the thing that people like when they read a study like, man, I wonder what the execution actually looks like when this. Right. Because they'll just say in there like, oh, exercise was monitored by, you know, whatever, you know, the, the grad student or whatever. Right. You know, and then you and then you look at the grad students Instagram or whatever, and you're like, ooh, that guy was responsible for the technique. Um, so unfortunately it is it is a challenge so this again is where being informed being educated helps you the most right because then you can be like all right does this make sense you know should i be skeptical of it but you know what i would say is is that you never make your decisions on just one piece of data especially if it's data that like you aren't you know you're not really associated with and when there's conflicting evidence you know so like take for instance like range of motion you know should we do full rom or partial roms or whatever right so i think what kind of rom are we talking about yeah right so I think, you know, when you look at something like that, where it's just like, all right, well, half the studies say one thing and half the studies say the other. I think it's close to a 50-50 mix now. It was, I think, like 60-40 for full, for general, generally saying full ROM, you know, which is not, you know, again, full ROM of what. But uh, now I think with the two more studies that we've had uh, that were now in favor of partial ROM, it's like, okay, it's literally 50-50. But that won't that still won't stop people from saying just like oh full rom is the best just because that's what we've been saying for forever right and it's not even full rom for the muscle it's just like an arbitrary like hey i move handle further that mean better um very caveman like you know way of thinking yeah right it's just like hey how far did the rock go all right cool how many times did i move are the we rock? training the rock are we training the muscles like which one of these things matters uh, oh man that's funny that's funny good good one um so for those of you who are not following n1 and coach Cassim, i definitely recommend you go hit up their socials give them a follow on instagram and um don't forget to tag them in your stories for some of the exercise variations that you see them um you know commonly perform and um be on the lookout for future practicals do you have any coming up yep we got openings in december and february right now cool february december and uh Go, uh, go subscribe to their YouTube because they're starting to push out content on YouTube. And as always, thank you guys for tuning in. Go ahead and take a screenshot of this. If uh, you enjoyed this episode, tag us on social media. And as always, I appreciate you guys for tuning in. Thanks again, Coach Kasim. Talk soon.